Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. I'd like to welcome our online audiences and our later to watch audiences as well on YouTube or Facebook. And it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Eddie Cole, who's here to speak about his book, The Campus Color Line. Uh, this is one of many online programs that we've done since the COVID crisis began. Um, we're bringing as much information as we can to you live streamed. And uh, today is, uh, of course, a, a very positive, I'm so happy to be discussing these topics because uh, Professor Cole has brought a lot of background information to decisions that were made when I was young um, and before he was born and uh, as a historian. And, and it's just fascinating to find out what decisions were made by different people for different reasons and with their mixed motives, as always, uh, that accomplished things for major educational institutions is a, a really great angle that you chose to take a look at this from the point of view of the college presidents or the leaders of colleges and universities across the United States of what happened after World War II. So thank you very much for joining us this way. Uh, sorry we couldn't be live in our, in our uh, San Francisco audiences, but uh, that's obviously not happening. Um, you're probably right next to your students at UCLA and still don't see them anyway, right? So right. Yeah. Right. That's, our, that's our life now. So first, uh, first question that I have is, um, you mentioned in the book that your parents were both educators, both, both uh, high school teachers. So you, you grew up in an educationally oriented family. Now you're writing about education. Yeah. Um, you grew up in Alabama. Mm -hmm. And your parents, obviously, uh, you, you said that they gave you a lot of the ideas about education that they came with. Now, you did all this research on what happened, what was going on when your parents were young. And did you find out anything that you then said, well, now I know why my parents think that, you know, that, that kind of. <laughs> uh, but George, great, great opening question. And first off, uh, thanks for joining me in the conversation. Always a pleasure uh, to discuss the book. And this is just a great group that. I write about it in the book, and we'll discuss about that later. Uh, but growing up in Alabama, let me just give a little bit of background for those of you who haven't had a chance to read the book yet. Uh, so I grew up in a town called Bology, which is in West Central Alabama, Greene County. In addition to my parents being rural West Alabama school teachers, uh, my father's parents were as well. And so mm. I come from a you know multi-generational household of educators, and it's just fascinating. And so what I always like to point out is that they grew up in the Jim Crow South with, you know, segregated schools. But by the time I came along, obviously formal segregation like their experience was long gone. Right. In, the, in the formal sense, George. Right, uh, in the formal sense, yeah. Right. But, you know, I always like to point out, you know, when I was a teenager going to high school in the, the next town over Utah, Alabama, uh, my public high school, which had an enrollment, uh, all black enrollment, was actually around the corner from a pr private, predominantly white academy which is the Segregation Academy, which was a response that many local whites across the South uh, built up and opened quickly in response to forced desegregation. Yeah. So even in my lifetime, I could see the remnants of the past. And so I always had these questions in the back of my mind about educational leaders and the decisions they've made historically and how that still impacted us today. But in the process of researching the book, you think you know one thing, right? Um, yeah. then getting into the archives, traveling across the nation to work on this book, I learned a ton about my parents just in the, the sheer understanding the expansiveness of organizing and what organizing looks like and how uh, oftentimes the lead narrative around civil rights organization is in the streets, uh, you know, protesting, sit-ins, demonstrations. But I understand a lot more about uh, the strategy behind organizations and associations and what did it mean for my parents and my grandparents to be members of the Black Teacher Associations uh, within the state of Alabama, and how those organizations may not have been out front in the formal sense uh, around organi organizing, but putting forth, you know, pushing the message around what it means to challenge segregation, what it means to fight for equal educational resources for Black students throughout Alabama um, and really throughout the South. And so I had a much better understanding, just, you know, long answer short, of when my parents had all these memberships and all these different civic organizations, and it was much more than fellowship. Um, it's mm -hmm. much more than a group to hang out with. Uh, they were actively, quietly uh, trying to make progress around education, making sure educational opportunity was true, fair, and expansive 
for all students. And so I had a much better understanding by the time I finished this book about just what my parents were doing all their lives. Well, it, you know, a big part of your book is explaining the judgment calls of, of how, how much to push forward, how much to hold back, how much restraint to have. And, and of course, that's continuing because it's, it's extremely frustrating you know, that you think, okay, well, I thought we, we crossed that bridge and we're back at the same bridge on the other side of it again, you know, over and over and over again. Uh, so, so one of the things I thought was great was how you connected so many things going on on campus that were inspired by the sit-in in Greensboro. And uh, you know, back in the ancient days of 2019, uh, we actually traveled our family to Greensboro for something else altogether. Um, it was an Irish dance competition for my daughter. But the, the uh, Greensboro, uh, have, they have a museum at the Woolworths uh, for where the sitting counter is, and they have it laid out and everything like that. It just seems to me in general that, that getting the history out, what actually happened, rather than what people's images are. You know, a lot of people want to eliminate facts that are really undesirable. And, and you know, you, you'd eliminate so much of human history if you did that. Um, and and it's, it seems much better for us to understand what actually happened, how it was accomplished. And your book is great for all that. Um, I'll tell one, one little story because of my age. Uh, when I was 10 years old, uh, you, you mentioned Chicago. We'll, we'll talk more about Chicago uh, later because that was a big part of what you, you showed what was going on. Um, but Mayor Daley, uh, who was influential in that, uh, was mayor there. My father was mayor of a smaller city just north of there, Kenosha, Wisconsin, oh. which just became famous uh, for, for other reasons. Um, but he was mayor for about 10 years, the same time that the first Mayor Daley was mayor. And we went to a mayor's conference, uh, to my brothers and my dad, uh, in Houston. And on our way there, uh, our car broke down just south of Memphis. This was before interstates. So it was, you know, small backhoe. And we stopped in a small southern town. And the guy who was, had to fix it said, well, this is going to take four or five hours to find a park for this car. So um, he called the local sheriff and had the sheriff come over. And I'm sure what he said was, I got a northern mayor on his way to a mayor's convention. You gotta, this was 1963. You got to talk to him, you know, and, and influence him. So we got a tour for about two hours. I don't know what the name of the town was, uh, where the sheriff told us all about what they were doing for the education of uh, the Negro population and so on and so forth. They didn't use that word. Uh, but uh, they explained, oh, the new building is for them. And we have the old building that's run down. And he was trying this, you know, whole approach to try to convince a northern, you know, mayor that they shouldn't be pushing these civil rights things on everybody. Mm. So I got, and my father was great about it because what he said was, afterwards he says, I don't ever want to hear you use that word that he used the whole time. Um, and he also said, but he grew up here, this is his way of looking at it. And obviously we are all going to try to change this cultural way of doing it because it can't continue and it's a terrible idea and all that. But it was a fascinating look as a 10 year old boy uh, in 1963 into exactly what was going on in the South for the educational system. So that, that's my experience. So we're going to talk about Mayor Daly a little bit later because the University of Chicago played a big role in your book, and I, I thought it was really excellent. Several other schools like that. But let's, uh, let's go to um, the, the next part of what I want to do. You, you, you said something that I wanted to actually quote, which I thought was really a great way of putting the main issue. You said, the people are there to navigate between equal opportunity and the brutal realities of hardened social disparities due to segregation. No, I think that was really, really an excellent way to put it because people talk a lot about equal opportunity. Yes. But, you know, they don't spend much time on the hardened social disparities that are causing serious problems of how do you overcome that? Um, Maybe we go right to the end, the last chapter of your book for, for a second about the, uh, you know, the whole thing with affirmative action, because that's what people are most familiar with. Yes. So tell a little bit about the real story behind that and what was motivating different people, because I thought that was fascinating. It always sounds like it's just got one motive, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's a great question, George. And it actually ties in nicely to the story you recall when you were a 10-year-old um, in breaking mm -hmm. down, you know, just south of Memphis, because the last chapter of the book, actually brings Southern educational system and college presence at black colleges in the South in conversation with the leaders of wealthier, large, predominantly white institutions. So imagine the University of Chicago, 
Michigan, Wisconsin, Yale, Princeton, all those institutions, all of a sudden these presidents are in conversation with each other. So here, here's what really happens. Affirmative action, as we think about it today, tends to be a debate over, can you consider race in college admissions? Mm. I think higher education and affirmative action, you know, us right here in California, right now, we've got a, a measure on the ballot around affirmative action, it's all linked together. That's what we think about, can you consider race and decisions made on college campuses? But originally, the idea for affirmative action was much more expansive. It was so wide. There were multiple programs, and the majority of these programs actually focused on historically Black colleges and universities. So in the summer of 63, President John F. Kennedy actually reaches out to educational leaders across the country, and he asked them for their help, knowing that, uh, you know, if institutions of a higher education have a responsibility to have these experts that can help solve societal problems, President Kennedy and his administration look to college presidents as the leaders of those institutions that mm -hmm. are expected to solve the nation's problems. And that's important. So President Kennedy asked college presidents to come up with special programs to address racial inequities in American in America. And immediately these, pro these presidents come together and a list of programs come out. And these programs focus on one, yes, considering race and college admissions on predominantly white campuses, but mostly uh investing more in historically black colleges, uh, mm -hmm. having exchange programs between black colleges and the wealthier, more resource predominantly white institutions, having additional summer training for black college faculty. The vast majority of these programs are actually focused on how can American university leaders come up with a series of programs that would help system-wide change within American higher education. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so notable because in reality, when it comes down to actually executing these programs, the majority of the attention, the presidents at the wealthier resource universities turn their attention exclusively to race conscious admissions, exclusively to the programs focused on their campuses, and largely dismantle and abandon the initial programs planned for historical mm -hmm. black colleges and universities. So it is so important coming, you know, post-World War II to think about what we could have seen. We could have mm -hmm. seen much more robust higher education system better equipped to handle race on a wider scale. And instead, when we argue about affirmative action today, we're actually having the most narrow, uh, specific argument around affirmative action as opposed to what the original plan was. You know, it reminded me in a totally different area. Um, you know, I, I worked as a lawyer in, in uh, corporate mergers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times corporations would not allow anybody to come in and take a look at them too carefully because this is what would happen. They'd come in and they'd say, we want to merge. And they'd interview all kinds of people. Um, and they'd say, well, we don't want to. And then they would pick off all the best brains, you know, from, or try to, and, and pay more. And, and you, you talk about this, that, that first it starts off this way. And essentially what it ended up doing is uh, the, the wealthier universities grabbed black faculty that they wanted and so on from the black institutions, which certainly wasn't going to help them. I mean, we, we do the same thing on our foreign aid to other countries. You know, we have people come here you know, uh, on, uh, on the fact that it cl clearly creates a brain drain too. So uh, I thought it was fascinating that this was, you know, it started one way and it goes another way. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that, I mean, and, and the way it went remains the norm, which is very, right. it's very interesting, right? When you understand the history, you know what way we could have gone when we got to the fork in the road. And so what happens, again, I love that fact that you emphasize that point around, uh, even the University of Wisconsin is a perfect example to where, they had a partnership with North Carolina A&T in Greensboro, which is home of where the Greensboro Four, the A&T Four, uh, that had the initial sit-in in February 1962, uh, that sparked the sit-ins for the, I mean 1960, that sparked the sit-ins for the rest of uh, that year. And in making this partnership program discussions, eventually mm -hmm. the president of the University of Wisconsin tries to recruit the president of North Carolina A&T come join the University of Wisconsin instead and leave behind being a complete college president and come, you know, become the director of the Institute for Human Rights for the University of Wisconsin on the Milwaukee campus, right? So right. That's, that's even telling in the sense of how these predominantly white institutions even viewed, you know, these historically black colleges uh, because they saw talent there but did not think those institutions were best served to house that talent. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and that's that's quite interesting. That's quite telling of American higher education to think 
how can a college president think that is equal of an opportunity for that individual to say, I'm going to recruit Samuel DeWitt Proctor, a renowned civil rights leader, minister, president mm-hmm. of North Carolina A&T, to come have some lower position within the University of Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, as opposed to being the president of North Carolina A&T. Well, that's it's a... It's an assumption. There's a lot of assumptions there um, that that uh, the person would, of course, grab it too. Uh, maybe we should sit here set the context uh, that you you worked on um, for after World War II. I think yeah. a lot a lot of people don't aren't, aren't aware of what the numbers were. How many people actually went to college prior to the World War II? How many went to college afterwards? What happened with the total expansion of the colleges and and how that was partially motivated by these racial, uh, you know, interests, but but also by so many other interests, and so that that got kind of subsided. So why don't you give the big picture about that one? Because I think it's really crucial for understanding what came next. Yeah, yeah, that is important because so the book has a focus specifically on the late '40s through the 1960s, and mm-hmm. so I pick up after World War II, and before World War II. Uh, college was an option, but it wasn't necessarily the normal path for, say, the average, you know, American citizen to go pursue higher education. There were, you know, absolutely opportunities to just go to work, uh, go immediately into work after finishing secondary school. They have a perfectly fine life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens with, you know, post-World War II, you get the GI Bill um, is one, uh, you know, you know, igniter of <laughs> the boost in enrollment. And, yeah. you know, college enrollment, I mean, quadruples almost and the number of people going to college and in turn because so many more people are taking advantage of federal benefits and other aspects post-war as you get you know industry is booming coming out of the wartime industry you know building and factories more people going to get more training uh, Mm -hmm. for a new economy that's coming along so colleges really uh, explode in enrollment I mean every college president is worried about how do they keep up they don't have enough space for the students and mm-hmm. when you have more people engage with any industry, there's more social influence because there's a greater number of people interested in this case in higher education. So mm-hmm. as the as the nation expands its college campuses, so too is the knowledge industry and the overall Cold War in the scientific mm-hmm. race from a global perspective. And so all of a sudden, institutions of higher education have an enormous amount of influence. In turn, college presidents get this new level of influence because they mm-hmm. lead institutions that are one expected to come up with the scientific discovery as we're you know in the you know the Cold War and against the Soviets and so forth. But then also, so many more people are just going to college, and so the the academic leaders have this high level of influence. But also, post World War II, as Black veterans come back from the war, they mm-hmm. know. They've been fighting in a global fight around democracy, but there's the contradiction when they come back to the United States and are treated again like second-class citizens, despite putting their lives on the line fighting for the for the for the country. So in that case, the fight for the the fight for racial equality in America also puts more pressure on colleges and universities. They grow and influence another step because again, as I mentioned earlier. If colleges and universities are expected to come up with the solutions to social problems, right. that means college presidents, again, who lead these institutions, were tapped by federal officials, state officials. They sit on so many influential commissions and task force and so forth. They were truly in the business of shaping social policies and practices with numerous racial implications. It's interesting because I don't think anybody would, you know, it's certainly not uh, with the the current administration would look to college presidents across the country to help solve anything or to change any any system that's going on. Yeah. Um, so it was was a, of a time when education was uh, highly admired, and everybody was saying, "Well, that's that's the way that we're going to keep moving forward as a country uh, if we educate a much higher percentage of our population better." Um, Around the uh, early '60s, uh, California made a decision about uh, their system, and you you mentioned. I think uh, who came out? John Williams, right? No, uh, John, that was a different uh, thing. I'll get back to that. But uh, when when uh, California came, had somebody move out to be UCLA president, you can tell the story about him. Franklin, Franklin Frank, Murphy. 
Right, right. And yeah. how how he he moved from the University of Kansas, right? Yes. And and yeah. uh, you know had, had a hard time doing it emotionally, uh, but he was promised lots of things. Uh, and and you you have a different point of view on uh, care uh, as the uh, chancellor or president of the whole UC system. But yeah. say, here's another system where it's supposed to do one thing, the change is supposed to do one thing and it does something else altogether. Uh, unless you don't want to talk about it because you're not teaching at UCLA. No, no, no. <laughs> it's all it's, history, right? <laughs> it's my pleasure to, uh, I mean, the issues that emerge from, you know, the public university system, the multi-system, three-tiered system, if you will, or as we say today, there are three independent college higher education systems. Uh, don't tier them. But in reality, it became uh, this matter of social tiering. So here's the breakdown, George. It's just the quick uh -huh. and uh, So Franklin Murphy is chancellor of the University of Kansas uh, through the 1950s. And he's actually you know, born in Kansas City in Lawrence, Kansas. It's just over the state line. Um, and so in this case, he's about 40 miles from home, but the opportunity to leave the UCLA uh, mm. comes. So if you know nothing about the University of California system, it's one university with multiple campuses. It has a president for the entire system and each campus has a chancellor. So mm. in 1960, California is building out the master plan for higher education, which ultimately sets up this multi-system uh, uh, higher education units where you have the University of California system, we have now the California State University system, and you have the community college system. Okay, now questions were raised even in the late 1950s, early 1960s, around what would that do around racial tiering? Would mm -hmm. that be an opportunity for, say, the University of California, where I am, to funnel um, non-white students, particularly especially black students, uh, toward the two-year colleges? And mm -hmm. The numbers played out that it went that way. So it's interesting that people raised these concerns, uh, and ten years later, those concerns became reality. But they were mm -hmm. largely dismissed by state leaders, um, as well as a number of university officials, including Clark Kerr, who's the president of the UC system. So mm -hmm. Franklin Murphy had some hesitance in coming to lead UCLA because this huge bureaucratic system. He wasn't sure if he had the authority to lead UCLA or if every major decision he had to make had to go through Clark Kerr in the system office. Um, and so he was promised complete autonomy. Uh, he went back and forth with numerous regents to make sure he could have that autonomy. He actually traveled to California multiple times during the 1959, 1960 academic year, just to test it out, just to make sure this was an opportunity that he wanted. And so he eventually accepts the job. There's a lot of fanfare around him accepting the job. And within his first year, He's butting heads with Clark Kerr, the president of the University uh, of California system, around how much he, you know, Franklin Murphy can push for ending racial discrimination on UCLA's campus and in the immediate Westwood community, which is. Mm -hmm. And so it raises all kinds of questions about even when you have an ambitious university leader who's supportive of fighting for racial equity what kind of systems and hierarchy and organizational structures are in place that still stifle a leader like even Franklin Murphy, um, mm -hmm. very much committed to and interested in ending racism and racial discrimination in its most prevalent forms in the UC system, but especially at UCLA. But what does it mean when you have this sort of social pushback and that kind of thing? So yeah, you know, the UC system is, I mean, alongside the Cal State system and the two-year system, it's quite interesting history to understand that and it raises all kinds of questions today about those same systems that still exist. You had some telling details in your book, which I found rather entertaining about, you know, like stationary, uh, not being able to go out in the president and the chancellor's name, but only in the president's name from Berkeley. And, and the, you know, the way people had to sit at a certain meeting didn't go right. And that, that really hurt Murphy. You know, all, all those things, uh, great details about the usual uh, nonsense. Uh, that accompanies any any kind of change in any any institution, yes. uh, but it's uh, it's interesting because that all got started, and I know that uh, you know in, in say late 1960s uh, when I was in high school and looking at colleges, I mean Berkeley was certainly considered the best uh, public school in the country, public university in the country, followed by Michigan and Wisconsin. That's what the people in Wisconsin anyway thought about it, <laughs> but. But the, the states, uh, you know, use a lot more tax dollars then. I mean, the people, again, were much, the taxpayers 
were much more willing to put a lot of money into the educational system than they are now. Interestingly, because I think there's much more money now. But, but the percentage, the amount of money, everyone's talking, you know, you're, we're wasting money on those, you know, people who make our children think, you know. <laughs> Whereas it was exactly, I, I think, the opposite. Everybody wanted uh, that and wanted to spend money on it in, starting in the late 40s and going right through uh, the 60s until, you know, partially until the kids started to, to uh, protest everything. Uh, that, pro that probably didn't help a certain percentage of the population. Thing. I gave money for that. I mean, that was how Ronald Reagan became governor of California, right? Yes. So, so uh, a fascinating look at, at, at the UC system. It worked in some ways, but I, I think it still, uh, I think it still uh, allows the two-year uh, community college uh, students to transfer if they've done well or something, right, for the last two years. So that part of the system hasn't broken down yet, right? No, but, but other people are always wondering, you know, because now there's a much higher percentage of foreign students that come to the University of California system, right? And because they pay full tuition, and that's what you have to do because of the financial issues. That's right. So, so you're being, being pushed by so many different angles. So if we talk about being pushed by so many different angles, let's talk about Mississippi, because I thought your chapter on Mississippi, uh, and that, that was John Williams. That's, that's yeah. the Chancellor John Williams in such a difficult position, uh, and the famous James Meredith admission case. So talk about, you know, this college president being caught in the middle here um, and, and how he tried to thread his way through it. Again, yeah. judgment calls, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, J.D. Williams has his, you know, J.D. is what his friends call him, but yeah, John D. Williams, uh, a fascinating, the, the seemingly impossible job of leading the mm -hmm. government. Um, you can imagine what, is, uh, what it must have been like to lead a university when faced with the question of desegregation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, J.D. Williams comes to uh, the University of Mississippi from West Virginia, actually. And so even his hire in, you know, 1946 is controversial, right? So what, what, the, what I try to, you know, carefully lay out, talk about competing pressures, is that the nuance within a region, right? Uh, you know, mm -hmm. there's the South. You can talk about the U.S. South. Then there's Deep South versus Upper South. And what does mm -hmm. it mean to be from Virginia, West Virginia, as opposed to being from Mississippi? So mm -hmm. as, as the, you know, the trustees at the University of Mississippi were looking for a chancellor, they laid out some basic characteristics. But one key factor was they prefer a Mississippian, <laughs> uh, but they'll settle for a Southerner. Uh, <laughs> that really sets the tone for his entire time leading that university after mm -hmm. his position. And so, you know, fast forward through numerous uh, desegregation attempts uh, through the 1950s, but really coming to James Meredith, which becomes much more notable because we're in, you know, we're in the 1960s. And James Meredith uh, attempts to apply to the University of Mississippi immediately after John F. Kennedy is inaugurated as U.S. president, right? So mm -hmm. this is strategic, this is thoughtful, all those sort of things. And so that application takes on much different meaning, goes through the court pressures, but here's what really comes down to, uh, you know, John Davis Williams uh, leading that university. The competing pressure basically comes down to it's against state law, the Mississippi State Constitution, to mm. admit James Merritt. And trust me, elected officials in that state, all white, would certainly uh, bring charges on university trustees and the chancellor if that decision were made. Yeah. That's one thing, right? Who wants to go to jail trying to admit one student to, to a university with multi thousands of students, even though that one particular student is black? On the other end, we're talking about the Kennedy administration in 19, early 1960s. It's also against the U.S. Constitution and federal pressure to mm -hmm. deny. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so again, you're going to come up on federal charges if you don't admit James Meredith. And that ultimately... It's the base, you know, that's the base. And there's this broader uh, strategy and, you know, state rights argument, you know, right. federal government, you know, versus the state of Mississippi, what you can and can't do. And, uh, you know, Chancellor Williams has a beautiful quote that I have as, at the title of the chapter and that, and that it says, quote, the university has bec become a pawn. So you talk mm -hmm. about broader chess game uh, going on between federal officials and state officials. And what does it mean to use the University of Mississippi? simply as 
a battleground and it's, you know, tons of the control comes out of the hands of the actual administrative leaders. Uh, but what's most notable, I like to point out about Chancellor Williams is that after the fact, when James Meredith is enrolled, after a race riot on campus that leaves two people killed and dozens injured, eventually he comes out to San Francisco mm -hmm. to the Commonwealth Club of California. In yes, I've heard of that. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting that, that that that's where he chose or he was invited to speak. Um, mm -hmm. It's a it shows that we've been doing our job for a long time. So he came out and 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 gave the Mississippi point of view, right? Yes, yes absolutely right. So he he comes out and he's at the Sheraton Palace Hotel. It's downtown. Got two hundred and fifty people in attendance. Ton of media there, print media as well as radio broadcasts are recording his speech. And what? You know, Chancellor Williams does, while standing in San Francisco before what becomes a national audience, um, is that he lays out just the context around why white resistance was as strong as it was in upholding this very Southern white supremacist oriented point of view that white Mississippians had and why one black student was not just a matter of one student at the University of Mississippi, but it was more of a challenge to the Mississippi way of life as it had been since Reconstruction. And that's right. important. Uh, so Chancellor Williams lays out that perspective on, you know, national and really international tension, really turn, you know, a, a frown eye, you know, toward uh, the University of Mississippi. Like, why are Mississippians fighting so hard to keep mm -hmm. one black student, James Meredith, particularly him having served um, in the U.S. military before, right. Man, right? So what does it mean to have this sort of resistance to a veteran, right? So close in the immediate memories of World War II, right? Mm -hmm. Say you can't come to a particular university. Uh, so he lays that out. And I think what's interesting, what I try to, again, lay out, you know, point out in the book is that uh, there's this regional conversation happening that it isn't just the West looking at the South or the South looking to the Midwest, that everyone's in conversation with each other around this broader race question. And closing this speech at the Commonwealth Club, Chancellor Williams says, this is much of a California problem as mm -hmm. it is a Mississippi problem. And that really, you know, really made this argument that you can be critical of Mississippi. You can be critical of white university leaders across the South, but you also have to face these same questions uh, whether it be that you're in California, Illinois, New York, wherever you are. But, uh, you know, I think it's just a really um, an interesting speech. And it was strategic that every word of that was combed thoroughly uh, behind mm -hmm. the scenes, um, as well as the chair of the trustee board, Charles Fair, actually sent out copies of the speech to other university leaders across mm -hmm. the nation, including Franklin Murphy, who we just mentioned down at UCLA. Yeah, a great speech that both sides uh, thought it was a good one anyway, um, you know, and, and helpful. Uh, I thought it was interesting that he, he to try to give the San Franciscans an, an idea about what it was like. He said that, you know, you have a local politician in Mississippi who is no longer, no uh, more likely to vote in favor of James Meredith's admission as a politician in San Francisco would run for mayor on the policy that, that he likes earthquakes. Yep, or, absolutely. Absolutely. Just, it was clever. Give people an idea about you know local local issues. It's a local problem. Um, one of the other that reminded me of another part of your book, which I found fascinating, was how uh, the silent network of of people working uh, mm -hmm. for advancement. Um, you mentioned there's several things. One was the international flavor of it. You know, after World War II, that that they were saying, look, you know. This is a problem in America that we don't have when we go to a lot of other countries. Well, we do when we go to South Africa, you know, but, but you know, comparing America to South Africa apartheid is not going to, is, is embarrassing, you know. Uh, and and they, they use that without hitting it too hard. But the other thing I found fascinating was how big a role uh, black fraternities and sororities and the churches played. And we know that the, we, we don't hear about the fraternities and sororities influencing things, but black churches are still influential as institutions. And I was wondering, it's like, doesn't make any difference. No one ever hears about a, a white fraternity being engaged in social activism. I mean, it's, it's exactly the opposite thing. So I found it interesting. Those institutions were affected because they're cross state lines or 
nationally, or how, how was it? Because we brought a bunch of people together from a lot of places. Why were those the focus? Yeah, so. yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question, and I'm glad you picked up on that, George. Uh, you know, that aspect of the book is so fascinating, so insightful, because what you see is a number of these college presidents, particularly if they were presidents of a black college, private or public institution, mm. right? If they led a black institution, uh, they, their bio was almost the same in the sense that they had memberships in so many other organizations. Mm. And so I, I talk about a lot in a book in the sense of just how dangerous it is to be a vocal challenger to segregation in the South, right? We know mm. people losing their lives all the time, right? This isn't just a, you might lose your job, even though that was a threat. This is truly a matter of life and death, like not to make yeah. it lightly. And so these presidents oftentimes did a very delicate dance in engaging white business leaders, white elected officials, uh, just the white community in general, because these institutions, especially if you were state supported, relied heavily on um, making sure that these black institutions were not becoming too radical, too advanced, doing too much too fast. Now, that's important. Because if you're being monitored and watch closely what you say as the president of a black college, you're mm -hmm. also uh, very careful in who you come in contact with and how you engage and what meetings you go to. And so oftentimes these civic organizations, black fraternities and sororities, black teacher associations, and numerous other civic groups were ways for these, these academic leaders to meet under the auspice of say professional development, <laughs> or mm -hmm. community service, and then also have so many sort of hallway conversations, behind closed door conversations and organizing that brought them together across state lines. And that I think is most important to understand about these organizations that they weren't just local in the sense of something that these presidents did every Tuesday evening. Yeah. These very strategic organizations that had a mission that very much adopted the platform around civil rights and racial advancement and challenging segregationists um, in the most subtle, quiet ways possible. Yeah, people in other, um, with other social causes could learn a lot from, from how this was accomplished, uh, a lot. And I think anybody that's, that's trying to change something should read your book and see how it actually happens because it, it, it is a process. It's, it doesn't, you don't change people overnight. One of the things that reminded me of, of what was in your book but a different character was Frank Rose at the University of Alabama, because mm -hmm. you mentioned how he did fairly much the same sort of dance uh, as, as the black college presidents um, in Alabama. And it was, again, caught between the, the governor and, and uh, the president. Yes. Um, and I, I, I had one question before we go into that. Uh, other than the Little Rock um, use of federal troops by Eisenhower before we got to Kennedy, I, I think that was the only time that federal troops were brought in, I mean, not after Reconstruction, of course, then they were, but that they, the federal troops were starting to use to be enforced in the South what the national norms were. And so Kennedy using the, the, these things was not the first time, but it was fairly new and, 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 and state rights very resistant, you know. Yes, is, yeah. that, is that about right? Okay, good. Yeah, so yeah. Let's, yeah. So let's go to Frank Rose, and, 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 you know, he seemed to have gotten a quiet network and he, he resisted the governor. He must have had a lot of support that he could count on to be able to do that. Yeah. It, I was wondering how much, how much he did, you know, because that, that, that indicates there was a lot of white support, not, not a majority probably, but there had to be a lot of white support, like one third or one quarter or something like that for him to take that stand would seem like. Yeah. 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 You know, this, this Frank Rose at the university of Alabama is important because you, I love, you know, I put those chapters back to back, talking about John Williams at University of Mississippi yeah. and Frank Rose at the University of Alabama, because I wanted to show that it was a little bit different in back to back states, but they influenced each other, right? You know, Mississippi right. looking at Alabama and Alabama certainly looking back at Mississippi. And so Frank Rose, um, you know, hired after a failed desegregation attempt at the University of Alabama in February 63 to where a black student, black woman, uh, Arthur and Lucy, was enrolled, but for all of three days, before a big uproar and white students protest and so forth, and then she's expelled. So University of Alabama is, uh, you know, very mindful that they're going to have to eventually enroll black students at some point. It's just a matter of when, if, and how to do so 
without the bad publicity and violence that had marred the University of Mississippi. All right. So that's mm-hmm. what, so almost immediately after, you know, the riot after James Meredith enrolls at the University of Mississippi, Frank Rose is strategically having conversations with so many different aspects of white Alabama uh, to make sure that when the desegregation decision comes to the University of Alabama, there's no violence, right? Um, and, and I think that's important. So you, I wish I could convey the sheer volume of support in the archives that Frank Rose received uh, and just all through his papers, he just had box after box after box, tons of things to read. But it was important. It's telling. It's very telling in the sense that white business leaders in Alabama especially did mm-hmm. not need the sort of bad media attention that really has shaped Mississippi, right? So mm-hmm. you about two states who are the last holdouts of segregation. Right. <laughs> in a fight to make sure one doesn't look worse than the other, right? Uh, I think that's, that's so important to, to, uh, to highlight because you can't underestimate uh, the, the, the role, the external facing pressure on Frank Rose. Um, and then the global external pressure on the White House to make sure there's no violence at the University of Alabama. So, you know, I, you know I, I'm very careful in threading the needle about being, you know, looking at the full totality of communication mm-hmm. among Frank Rose because he is very much in communication with the governor, George Wallace, segregation, mm-hmm. who's notable for his symbolic stand in the schoolhouse door to block Vivian Malone and James Hood from enrolling as black students at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. He's mm-hmm. very with George Wallace, their communication office. He, he, but despite as often as they're in communication, uh, he's also behind the scenes working with business leaders to make mm-hmm. sure that they have their support and their plan now to make sure it goes out violently. I mean, it goes out without violence, despite the threat of violence with George Wallace coming to campus to block their enrollment. And so he does a number of things. He sends business leaders to South Carolina to talk mm-hmm. to Clemson University officials who has successfully enrolled a black student without violence. So, I mean, you talk about moving across state lines, calling people, phone calls, letters, Airport meetings, meeting, you know, flying from Tuscaloosa, Alabama to Anderson, South Carolina to discuss how do you do this while publicly not, you know, condemning the governor of the state who has influence over your university budget, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank Rose truly, uh, you know, as I say at the end, is very much, you know, directing an orchestra, uh, certainly uh, in this case. You know, uh, this is this is an aside, but uh, you know, the economic uh, influence on the decisions and, and, and the support that's quiet and maybe even uh, by racists, uh, I'm sure in many cases, but they don't want the ec- economy uh, destroyed uh, is crucial. And the interesting thing about that is if you didn't have independent economic institutions, yeah. you wouldn't get that influence on the government from the side. Um, and, and I think people don't think about that when we distribute power the, the way we do in America uh, and other places. And one of the, my favorite uh, examples of that is a totally different version of, of it. But um, when Silicon Valley uh, collapsed in 2001, uh, after its first bubble or first big bubble, um, a large number of people lost their jobs that were from India. And a lot of them went back to India and they started their own businesses. And several years, and they built up big businesses, uh, phone businesses, but also high-tech businesses in the south of India. And a few years later, when uh, Pakistan and India were in it, both nuclear, although not avowed at that time, but both nuclear powers, were, were starting to yell at each other in a way which was very dangerous. They lost half their business from the United States and other places because people were afraid it was going to fall apart. And then those leaders went to, their, to, to the president of India and said, you have to stop talking like this. You're killing our businesses. Yeah. And so, so I, I don't think it would have led to nuclear war, but, but it's useful to have, in, your case, in, in the case of your book, you're talking about educational institutions, yes. economic institutions, educational institutions. They're all different kinds of institutions that then can put pressure on the government if things aren't going the way that you want to. Um, it, you know, the belief that you can put all the all the uh, responsibility and authority in one institution, no matter whether it's a religion or government or anything. I think history has shown that doesn't work very well. We're, we're too human, you know? Yeah, yeah, none, none at all is, is quite ineffective. And that's what unfolds in Alabama, right? The economic pressure becomes so real that these, again, 
white business leaders deciding to hop on planes and fly to different states to figure out how to do this safely, right? Because, you know, again, 1960s, uh, these universities are still growing uh, post-World War II. So the enrollments are getting larger and larger. And, you know, the local newspapers in the state of Alabama, some of them, not all of them, but some of them are even making the argument that for the sake of the state's economy, mm-hmm. it has to be done peacefully, right? You, mm-hmm. can, you can hate the idea of black students going to the University of Alabama, but you cannot have a violent resistance to this, or it's just going to destroy the state of Alabama, uh, which was, you know, largely a rural state that already was suffering, you know, high levels of poverty, just naturally, especially across the Black Belt region where I'm from, uh, that mm-hmm. was already the case. So, I mean, the business interest, I mean, right, again, this book really using higher education as a lens reminds us of just how organizations are intricately linked to each other. Right, and a lot of the decisions the universities made were based upon, you know, they couldn't attract faculty that they wanted. They couldn't attract students that they wanted. And so they, they, they make these economic decisions for their universities that have other uh, effects uh, altogether. And we'll, we'll go to the University of Chicago right. next. Right, and, re- and, and recruiting faculty and getting grants. You can't get federal grants if you're a segregated institution. All of right. that together. Yeah. Yeah. All the different influences that we, we put on each other. In fact, you know, I mean, I was uh, raised Catholic, and, and uh, one of the seven deadly sins is greed. But, uh, but as a, an older man, I've often thought, you know, just a little bit of greed probably would have helped people make much, much better societies long, long ago, rather than the, just tell people to be nice. Just a, <laughs> not, not too much greed, but just a little bit. Because uh, it, it does seem to put pressure on people in the right way. Uh, so uh, one of the questions we have is, uh, you know, you, you, they said you put off talking about Chicago, but I want to hear about it. So, okay. <laughs> so, so why don't you tell the story of the University of Chicago? One of the things that was very interesting to me and uh, growing up near Chicago was that it was uh, after World War II was, was losing students and was going downhill. Um, and and it, it was a sterling institution by the end of the 60s. So... What did the leadership do and, and, and what were their sins versus their, their accomplishments? Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, and it tells a lot about Chicago politics, too. I, I thought it was a great story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the University of Chicago and Chicago in general uh, is quite an uh, insightful example. It, it's probably the thing that, it, in addition to the affirmative action argument, has the most clear connections to issues we're still seeing today. I mean, it's just so, you know, housing discrimination, the role that universities play expanding and displacing communities. So insightful, but just a little backstory because it's important. It sets up University yeah. of Chicago compared to other institutions of higher education. When enrollments are growing post-World War II, University of Chicago is struggling. The reason mm-hmm. that's the case is because Hyde Park, where the University of Chicago is located, is bordered by Washington Park to the west and Woodlawn Community to the south. When you've mm-hmm. got Washington Park on the west and Woodlawn, these are predominantly black communities. Now, because of decades of racial restrictive covenants and housing and, you know, the next wave of the Great Migration to the Midwest, Northeast and so forth, Chicago gets an influx of black residents trying to get out of the Jim Crow South, right? Looking for mm-hmm. a better life, better opportunity. And they land in the neighborhoods that welcome black because Chicago is highly segregated uh, in that case. And so what happens is if so many square miles are a black community, but you're getting an influx of people that can't physically live, there's no more space. These black communities started to encroach on Hyde Park. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, census tracts, I started, as I discussed in the book, I started following census tracts and data and how the population shifting and is becoming uh, more and more blacker from 1950 to even the 1956. I'm following the numbers here. Mm-hmm. And what happens is University of Chicago officials uh, can no longer attract numerous white students, uh, white faculty, and so forth. Uh, they're fleeing to the suburbs and choosing more suburban universities like the University of Michigan and so forth. And so University of Chicago Chancellor Lawrence Kipton uh, feels there's this emergency happening in the sense that urban universities like the University of Chicago have to find a way to save American cities, but really save the universities. And mm-hmm. so in 1957, I lay out this meeting in 1957 between Kipton organizes with the president of the University of Pennsylvania, Philly, uh, the president of Columbia, right there next to Harlem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cambridge uh, has Harvard and MIT. Uh, Mm -hmm. The president of New Haven, you know, Yale University. These six college presidents come together in 1957 
and they devise a plan among themselves to where they start to lobby to federal officials to get millions of dollars earmarked for these universities by way of federal housing acts, right? Uh, ultimately uh, spins off urban renewal programs, which is the land revitalization uh, pro federal program. And these millions of dollars, even in the 1950s and 60s, go to these universities mm -hmm. and they start buying up this property, which really ends up being places where black, black households had been for generations and mm -hmm. displacing them, right? Mm -hmm. So this is such an insightful and notable story because it's not just the University of Chicago story. It becomes an American tale from major city to major city, from Boston to New York to Philadelphia to Chicago, and you can keep going to mm -hmm. where these academic leaders, college presidents, actually shaped federal housing policy in a way, in tandem with the federal government, that put millions of dollars into these urban renewal programs. In fact, by the early 1960s, one program that University of Chicago was featured for eventually had totaled up to nearly $200 million in worth, right? Mm -hmm. That would be a headline today if a university right. was involved with a program that was gonna cost $200 million. Imagine the sheer volume of cash poured into these universities, uh, even configurations within uh, federal funding models that gave three federal dollars to a city such as Chicago for mm -hmm. every one dollar that the city put up, or in this case, the University of Chicago in relationship with the city put up. Just a remarkable uh, aspect to understand that we know loan as a contentious relationship between these universities and nearby black communities, but to truly see how it happened and how these university leaders, despite having public statements around being diverse and welcoming black students and having yeah. some black faculty, at the same time publicly saying that in comparison to you know, say Southern universities, don't look down South, how bad they are, look how segregated they are. Yeah, yeah. You know, pat ourselves on the back, University of Chicago. While at the same time that's happening, these universities are at, you know, moving thousands of households, disproportionately black households. Mm -hmm. In your research, did you determine how they were able to get their hands on all those federal funds? Were their alumni networks uh, probably useful in that? I would think they, they, a lot of them would end up in the government. So, Yeah, you know, here's the thing about when you look at elected officials, and I mentioned this um, in the book, looking at some elected, you know, uh, senators on the uh, one of the budget, uh, the Senate budget committee, right? Uh, mm -hmm, right. At the time, right, a future president of the United States, John F. Kennedy is a key mm -hmm. player on the budget committee, right? Uh, uh, very telling, because what is he? Harvard educator. Ah, right, so all of a sudden, you got elected officials who are very fond of their alma maters. Yeah. to the presidents from their alma maters say, to save your university, to save your, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, this will be very big for us. So yes, the same networks and the same connections are at play. Uh, is is so and so writing this book and seeing who was in school together, at what time, who knew? You know, uh, it's just George. We could go on all day about that. Yeah. Well, I, I thought one of the things that you talked about. We'll we'll, we'll go to that now uh, since you mentioned the network. You you keep uh, mentioning the silent uh, networks versus the vocal networks and how to make the choice between them. And now, obviously, the alumni networks are a silent network behind the scenes. As you mentioned, I I, I love that. Uh, there's there's pressure on, on anybody with a degree from the university to make sure the university keeps its reputation up because that's, you know, makes them look better and better no matter, you know, uh, what else they've done. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, tell, tell about the choices between the silent and the vocal networks and who chose w w which approach and which do you think was more effective over time? You, yeah. you, you looked at a big enough period of time that you can kind of sell. Sometimes the vocal gets a lot of attention, but what's effective? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, it really varies, right? So a, a vocal example would be, you know, a Franklin Murphy that who comes to UCLA from Kansas, right? He's very vocal, right. wants to support black students, uh, fights very hard to get the campus chapter, the NAACP registered as a student organization after being denied for years by a much more conservative uh, UCLA administration. Uh, so you get a vocal leader like that, but then you get these silent networks as well, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, again, you know, Frank Rose at University of Alabama, much more cautious in what he says. Uh, mm -hmm. 
which one is most effective? It really just depends on the context, the moment. Um, and I think college presidents, what history tells us, uh, based on you know a national study that I've conducted, is that you can be silent on some issues and perhaps vocal on others and maybe vocal at some times and silent on others. Mm -hmm. It really just depends based on your local context, your social context. And that's what, you know, I spend a lot of time in the book trying to emphasize the particular university chancellor's situation and context, right? I don't make a broad stroke about right, right. leaders. I'm, I'm very, I try to have some nuance and understanding what it means to lead a university in Mississippi compared to one in Georgia. It's much different. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what we see in history is that uh, these presidents are quite aware of their surrounding. They're quite aware of, you know, alumni pressure as opposed to student pressure, because we haven't even talked a lot about student right. resistance just yet, right? Because, you know, we, the 1960s has a lot of that as well. So it really just depends, uh, you know, the situation is moment to moment, month to month, on campus versus off campus, right? When you give a right. on campus, what does it mean when you give one in the community? So much, so much variance. It was interesting how you said in California, the, the CARE had this uh, the rule against uh, anything that had anything political, that no student organization could do that, which put in context uh, both the, it might've been used for racial reasons partially, but it certainly affected the free speech movement or the free speech movement was a reaction against it. I saw that Mario uh, Savio got, uh, his little uh, thing in your book as well. I mean, and, and he did, uh, like you said, he got his start with the Mississippi things. And so all the different protests at Woolworths around the country and, and you know, people don't think of the early 60s as a time of that protest because they just look to the late 60s when there were a couple million people involved in the protesting. And, uh, but but it, it, it also, protesting is also something that develops over time. No, yeah. if, it, if it gets started small and it has some effects, then people, more and more people will adopt it, obviously. By the end of the 60s, it was you know, against the war and against this, uh, the failure to, to improve civil rights and right. millions of people were involved. So um, there's, there's uh, another big issue. Uh, let's see, a question that was being asked. Oh, yeah. We have to talk about Martin Jenkins. All right. Martin Jenkins is really, what a great story about, you know, how President Beard of the University of Maryland, you know, wanted <laughs> to take over these things in order to keep segregation in place. Here's a, here's a man who barely concealed what he really wanted to do, right? Barely. Barely, uh, yeah. It would be generous to say he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you know, so Martin Jenkins, president of Morgan State uh, University now in Baltimore, which is a historically black college. Uh, so important, it, I just, what a character to come across. Yeah. Again, this isn't someone that you typically think about. Um, as a leader of a black college, there are other names that may come to mind before Martin Jenkins, but Martin Jenkins stands out as just a dynamic figure. Um, and I think anyone who reads his book will find uh, some interest in his life and his work. Uh, so mm -hmm. that story on him, born and raised Terre Haute, Indiana, right there on the uh, Wabash River, and right. then goes to Howard University in Washington, D.C., um, you know, in the early 1920s. Born in 1904, goes off to college in, in you know, 1921, graduates from Howard University in Washington, D.C., 1925. Just for those who don't know, Howard is like the, one of the premier black universities, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's perfect, right? So private, you know, federally subsidized university right there in Washington, D.C. Just really, I mean, as Howard alumni I like to re refer to it, is the mecca, right? Uh, right. So and that's his historic symbolism just for having dynamic scholars, students, and so forth. Howard University has a unique role in the broader higher education system, not just black colleges. Right. So because Martin Jenkins is educated at Howard University, um, particularly in the 1920s, think about the new Negro movement and so forth. So it's his forward thinking, um, you know, ambitious uh, training that he gets at Howard in the 1920s in his urban setting, Washington, D.C. But he comes back after graduation to Terre Haute, Indiana, when Indiana in 1920 is really home to the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan, right? Mm -hmm. So you see his life um, really just sort of exposure, learning in DC alongside his rural Indiana uh, upbringing as a black person, right? Um, and then he goes, leaves Indiana, quickly goes on to Northwestern University where he gets his master's and PhD. Um, trained in the, the spirit, I would say, of W.B. Du Bois and that he's you know, formally educated at a black college undergrad 
and then gets his PhD at one of these large, um, you know, white universities, and you know, goes on to become a scholar and publishes so much, just a ridiculous volume, even by today's standards. I'm in awe right now um, as a mm-hmm. UCLA professor, thinking about how much he publishes. But I share all that to say that by the time he takes over as president of Morgan State in Baltimore in 1948, he has built out a network, again, a multiple networks that through his training at Northwestern, he has published in white-run academic journals. He has mm-hmm. advised federal officials as a, a phenomenal scholar doing survey research around Black youth and gifted education. And he's also publishing in Black-run publications, the Journal of Negro Education, uh, Crisis Magazine, um, by the NAACP. So he's got this connectedness that's just out of this world to understand, and he deploys that to maintain the independence of Morgan State University which is mm-hmm. important because he's the second black president of Morgan State because Morgan State initially was a private institution converted to a public institution because Maryland has a racist history that never fully funded public black higher education. And so right. he follows uh, another black president who was also educated at Howard. So you see the Howard pipeline being influential here. Yeah. And so when we talk about President Byrd at the University of Maryland, One of his biggest issues is that Morgan State has had these dynamic leaders and is growing at a ridiculous rate. You know, it's almost at 2,000 students, which is really large at the time for a black college. Mm -hmm. And it has this level of independence that other black colleges in the Deep South don't have, where in Alabama, Mississippi, so forth, is one governing body, one board of trustees for all public institutions of higher education. But Maryland, Morgan State had its own board of trustees, which meant mm-hmm. independence. It could lobby directly to the state house in Annapolis. Uh, and Byrd, as president of University of Maryland, couldn't stand it. Right. Absolutely hated it and made every public attempt possible to take the independence from Morgan State and have it come under the University of Maryland as a branch campus to the University of Maryland. And because of the ridiculous strength of Morgan State, that's what upset him the most. And it's quite telling of what Martin Jenkins had to do to do this delicate dance again to keep white leaders like Byrd off of the university's back, off of his back, while also fighting to maintain this unique black space of critical learning that Morgan State was and arguably continues to be today. Now, the details are fascinating in your book. Uh, Really, really a good read. So um, we're getting to the end of our time, but there's a, one big issue I wanted to cover first. Um, if you went back to the year 1400, in the 1400s, um, and uh, the Renaissance was getting started, you would have found probably a lot of even Renaissance uh, leaders thinking, we'll never be able to educate the serfs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, 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 it's hopeless. And uh, the 20th century has obviously completely uh, put a lie to that. You know, women have been educated, all minorities, every different, every, every single group has been able to be educated. So it, it puts the lie to it because it shows just like the uh, President Byrd uh, of the University of Maryland, it really is an issue that you just politically want to keep a group or another group or you want to keep women in the kitchen, you want to, whatever your adjustment is, has nothing to do with reality, okay? Yes. So, so the question is, there are some people you know, today that are almost saying education itself is a cultural imposition upon other people, you know, saying we, we, we don't, I, I understand you haven't been raised in an educated uh, family and that education is the thing of your family, but that sounds weird. Um, and I, I feel the same way, but there are people feel being forced to be educated and, and, and not thrive, not, not, not do very well is, is a way of making me feel small. Um, and how do you, I mean, obviously you're in favor of education, but do you think that there's an argument that can be made, a persuasive argument about that? No. No, okay. <laughs> I, I mean, in favor of education. Oh, I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. what would you say to say, no, education's absolutely required, and, and, and yes, it will have some of the effects you're talking about, but but why do we need it anyway? And, and as yeah. universal as possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, you know, education is at the heart of an informed and engaged citizenship. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Even if you can, you know, a lot of people have 
you know, generally started to equate education with economic prosperity, social mobility, and so forth. Get educated, get a better job, live a better life, right? I hear that, and, you know, obviously there's some truth to that, but broader, even as we're coming up on the eve of a presidential election, here's a moment to where we see so many mistruths um, shared widely, often, all the time, through social media, uh, television, regardless, you know, all that sort of thing. These things are shaping the way we think, and we're largely misinformed. We're not being able to critically dissect that information. So even if you felt as if, you know, you want to make an argument against education, I wouldn't make an, I wouldn't, you know, you know, I do have an argument, you know, that student debt is too high and it's getting ridiculously expensive to go to college, but the sheer idea of education, I like to offer it from a broader standpoint, not mm. just formal schooling and not just a traditional four-year college, because I don't want to have this conversation and not think historically about the role of community colleges. I'm glad you asked about the California mm. local systems in California, because education on any level presents an opportunity for us to become better informed citizens, to be better engaged with the overall political process, and really to shape a life that is truly better than the one that um, has existed in the past, the one that we're grappling with now, so that we can truly see a brighter future. Not one of those rah-rah moments around education, but simply right. from the pure, not simply from the pure fact that the more we know, the better informed we are, the better life we all live. And even if you don't want to be a good citizen and an informed one, uh, it will culturally enrich your life, you know, in, in, in ways that you should increase your pleasure and all those kind of things. Uh, one, just one last statement about people who say, complain that too many students at college are wasting all their time and money. They're just partying and so on and so forth. I say, well, you know, the top 10 or 20% of those students are not doing this. They are all studying very hard and trying to, to, and all those that are partying, they still have to go to class and they're still going to get culturally enriched. And, and I, I think uh, people should be able to, since they probably mostly like to go to parties themselves, should, should realize that even that form of slightly diluted education is extremely uh, crucial to the democratic experiment that we're all part of. Thank you so much you know, for, for joining us today. Uh, that was a great conversation. Uh, and so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. Um, and uh, as, as, as you brought up, Professor Cole, uh, one of those uh, discussions was held in 1962 here uh, that was part of your book. So that's just great. Uh, thank you very much for joining us and thank the audience for, for joining us. And uh, if you uh, have any questions you want to send in later, just go ahead and send them to uh, the chat room and we'll pick them up and try to answer them for you. Thanks, thanks. So again. And thanks again, Professor Cole. Hey, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to chat about the book and bravo for having me at the Commonwealth Club. Our pleasure. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.